So let us go to the Skype Maker Hotline and bring in our Wisdom Wednesday regular co-host from the St. Benedict Center and the host of Reconquest Radio. Here every Wednesday night at 8 Eastern, there's a brand new episode. We're up to... We're up to episode, what is it, 287, I think? 287 tonight, Mike. See, I got it right. 287. He is the one and only Bam, as you know him. Brother! <laughs> brother Andre Marie. Yes, brother, I told Kennedy Hall to listen to me introduce you today because I would knock it out of the park, and I just failed. <laughs> <laughs> I just blew well, your intro, so. <laughs> oh, well, uh, good morning to you anyway, Mike, and to all of our listeners. Um, brother, there's no shortage of things to talk about here today uh, on on uh, Wisdom Wednesday. But since I know that you are a naturalist and that you vehemently oppose the genetic modification of foods, and probably, as was a surprise, a surprise to me, I didn't know. Uh, just how much farmland had been brought up by corp bought up by cor corporations that are either based in China or have ties to companies based in China, but it's so bad that even Biden-friendly Democrats are going like, "Okay, this is stupid. You got to stop this." Uh, now I hope that they actually stop it and then reverse it and say, uh, "You got to either sell that land back, or we're just going to take it from you and give it back to the original owner." Yeah, why don't they use eminent domain? They're good at using that when, when uh, you know, when they're ripping off little people. Yeah, they could use eminent domain, couldn't they? That's a good point. Uh, they probably won't. And by the by, eminent domain is a complete fabrication. Of, uh, well, it actually does. There, there, there is some uh, hereditary, or it, it does come from something of the monarchical orders that a king or a queen actually could I don't know if they called it uh, eminent domain back in the days of Christendom, but there were special certain circumstances where a king might say, well, I'll have to have your land because I must build a bridge over this river to get my army to the other side. Uh, that's not what they do today, though. No, there would, there would have been something like eminent domain, certainly. And I believe, in fact, that the term itself originates from um, times of, of, of the monarchs. Uh, but uh, the the actual exercise, the actual practice of eminent domain in the land of the free and the home of the brave is, I think, much more violent and invasive and, and um, violative of what we call distributive justice uh, than than it would be in um, in in you know in Christendom than it would have been in Christendom. Yeah, you can join our chat room conversation. You're going to want to jump in there if you're not there. Uh, crusadechannel.com forward slash chat because there's lots of stu stuff coming fast and furious at you. Brother, I wanted to stay, uh, start today's Wisdom Ben's Day with a, a, a kind of a curveball for many people because today is not the actual feast day, but tomorrow is the, uh, is the feast day of St. Mary Magdalene. And I know I've heard you talk about her before and I've heard you say that, well, you know, Mike, most people don't get Mary Magdalene, St. Mary Magdalene, right, or, or her her, uh, her significance and why she has a feast day. Uh, so I thought we might start with that, and then we'll, 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 we'll talk about the motto proprio 
And then also, I don't know if you saw this. I know you read Crisis Magazine uh, and, and the website, but you may not have gotten to it yesterday. There was a story that came out in The Pillar, which is a newspaper, I believe, or a, a journal. And the story uh, was about Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell uh, Bur or Burrill. Not sure how you pronounce it. In any event, it got Father James Martin <laughs> J. It got so deep under his skin that he went off on a Twitter tirade. Um, and I'm going like, dude, just tell everyone that you got a grinder account and get it over with. <laughs> I'm reading this going like, he's horrified that they're going to find out. In any event, we, we can talk about all of those things. But let's start with St. Mary Magdalene. Well... Um, I think St. Mary Magdalene gets uh, ripped off a lot because you have people running around saying that she was a prostitute, which there's absolutely no evidence of. And, and even in that movie, Risen, the movie, I think you, have you seen Risen? Uh, yeah, it was stupid. Okay. So in the movie Risen, when uh, Maximus or uh, Gaius or whatever he is, I can't remember his name now, Josephines, when he goes to the barracks of all the uh, Roman, uh, the centurions, and he asks if anyone, if any of the guard, if they have seen or if they know Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, yeah. they yeah, all I raise. I remember the scene. I hated it. Yeah, I they all it. raise their hand, and you know the joke is, well, the, you know they had all had her. Um, so is 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 what is it is? Let me try to speak in English. Is what you think that Mary Magdalene is not? is often confused or is kind of um, uh, her story is kind of melded with a, another woman in the gospel that might have been a harlot. Well, um, she, I mean, the fact of the matter is she's called, she's not called a harlot anywhere. Um, even if she is the woman caught in adultery, which, which I, th I think she was, that doesn't mean she was a, a prostitute. A okay. prostitute's a, prof, a, a, a professional, you know, as they call them now, sex worker. Right. Uh, there's no evidence of that. Um, so, uh, I mean, we, we know that our Lord drove seven devils from her. You know, I'm not saying she was a saint all of her life before she encountered our Lord. That's not that's not my point. My point is it's a gratuitous and, and lately um, come by assertion that she was actually a, uh, a woman of the evening. There's no reason to uh, assert that. She was obviously worldly. She was obviously uh, not uh, morally upstanding. Uh, and she, clearly she needed our Lord, right? I mean, which, of course, all of us do. Uh, but the, the idea that she was therefore a prostitute is, is an absurd conclusion. And I mean, you know, and, and I'll say something that that'll make me sound almost politically correct. I think it's an insult to women. In other words, uh, you assume that just because a woman has a checkered past, she must have been a prostitute. Really, <laughs> really, is that is that where we're at? <laughs> so, um, somebody in the chat room, which I see, uh, says Saint John Fisher believed that Saint Mary Magdalene was a woman of iniquity, possessed by seven devils. The woman called an adultery and the sister of Martha and Lazarus. I think yeah, I believe in all that, by the way. Uh, but that doesn't mean she was a prostitute. Um, so okay. uh, the the um, the she is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Correct. I mean, the, the the Roman Church's liturgical tradition uh, testifies to that, and 
but by her own selection of readings in the liturgy. So I, I, I think uh, 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 what Aaron says in the chat room is good and uh, needs to be um, needs to be defended. Uh, in fact, I can I can pop up something into the ch- chat room that's a link to something that. Brian Kelly wrote some years ago about um, St. Mary Magdalene being the, I, identical to with um, the, the Mary who is the sister of Lazarus and Martha of Bethany. Um, it, you know, because these things aren't so obvious, right? I mean, they, they really aren't. You know, when you read the scriptures, it doesn't say who's who. Sometimes you get, you know, Bartholomew and, and Nathaniel. They're the same guy. Right, uh, they're the same apostle. Nathaniel's mentioned in Saint John under that name, and Bartholomew's mentioned in the Synoptics under that name. Uh, now, the universal tradition is that the, that the, the same man, uh, but it's not so obvious in Scripture. Um, so, um, you know, th- 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 we have to triangulate these things, and that's you know, our Lord gives us puzzles sometimes that we have to put fill in the pieces with and, and take little clues here and there in Scripture. So there's nothing to say that this is, um, you know, somehow scandalous that 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 there are different opinions on these matters. Um, so the fact that she was the brother of La- uh, the sister of Lazarus and uh, the the sister of Martha. Uh, I have a little tie to this, and that is the, um, there is a, a great story, a great tradition that's still carried on to this day. I don't know, maybe the Corona Doom might have killed it. Um, I believe it's the south of France, uh, Marie Saint, uh, uh, Ma, uh, Maurice Saint, me, uh, I'll have to go to my site and look it up. But every year, the people in the town, they commemorate the landing of the little ship that would have brought St. Martha, St. Mary Madeline, and Lazarus to the south sh- the shores of South France by taking the pair of statues that are in the church uh, nearby of, uh, of Mary Magdalene and uh, St. Martha and putting them in this little boat, and uh, they process with her out into the sea. Uh, they don't go, uh, they go up to their knees or whatever. Priest comes out and they have a, uh, a a little ceremony and a prayer. And then they process back to the town. And then it turns into like a festival and a celebration of the two saints. And then they bring the uh, the the, uh, the statues back to the, uh, to the church. And then they have relics. They have actual relics of St. Mary Magdalene and St. Martha. And, they get, and you get a chance to venerate them. So, yeah, and, and, and along with them came St. Maximin and St. Sidonius, the man born blind. At least that's the tradition. Um, and also they brought the body of St. Anne, and that's why the body of St. Anne is buried in, in France. And, and the body itself was discovered in the time of Charlemagne, the, the, the location of the burial, the, 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 the location of the relics of St. Anne that were buried in France. So these traditions of southern France are actually pretty strong. And there, uh, I think there's also uh, St. Mary Salome. Salome. You, you say Salome. Okay, St. Mary Salome is also. I, I don't, um, I'm not aware that Samaria Salome was with them, but. Uh, I got to get my article so I can actually remember because it's been 10 years since I wrote it. But in any event, uh, tomorrow will be uh, celebrated the uh, the day, the feast day of St. Mary of Magdalene. Now, brother, is it commonly thought that on the day of the resurrection 
that one of the ladies or, or one of the women that goes to the tomb and thinks she's having a conversation with the gardener, is that Mary Magdalene? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Oh, when you mentioned Mary of Salome, she was one of the holy women that went to the tomb. So she's one of what they call in the Eastern churches the, the holy myrrh bearers, the ones who went to go anoint our Lord. So um, maybe that's where you're throwing in St. Mary of Salome. But uh, Mary Magdalene, yeah, she's the one who went to the tomb uh, and uh, saw the gardener. And um, she, she asked, you know, where, where have they, they, they have taken away my Lord and I, and, and I do not know where they have laid him. You know, wh where have they put him that I may take him? You know, it's funny. They didn't think about how they were going to roll the stone back until they were walking on the way to the tomb. And then they didn't. And then she, she didn't. Obviously, she didn't put much thought into what she was going to do with our Lord's body. Like, was she going to carry it herself? Uh, because she actually said that I may that I may uh, take it. But uh, anyway, at that point, our Lord reveals himself to her and he says, Mary, that's the only word he says. And she says, Rabone, Rabone, which means um, in Aramaic, uh, my, my teacher. It's like a, it's like a, a, a familiar ending attached to the word rabbi, uh, sort of a, sort of a, um, uh, an intimate kind of uh, way of, of, of um, addressing the person. And, um, and she went to go, you know, embrace his feet because uh, she was on the ground. And he said, uh, Noli me tangere. That's the famous passage where he says, you know, do not touch me for I have not yet ascended to my father. So, uh, it, which itself is filled with all sorts of mystery, but yeah, that's that. She is definitely the one that saw the gardener, Mike. So, uh, uh, brother, how's your French? <clears throat> Not very good. Saint Marie's de la Mer. That's the Marys of the Sea, correct? Uh, how do you spell Marie's? Uh, M A R I E S. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not sure what that meaning ending means. Um, Marie is is uh, M A R I E. Marie is Mary in French, but that's my name. Uh, <laughs> I knew that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's. I don't think it's intended to be the plural, but uh, but I don't. I don't know. Okay, so it's uh, the festival I was mentioning every year, and I put the link in the chat room if you want to read my uh, my handiwork is uh, celebrated every year in Sainte-Marie-de-la-Mer. Uh, and there's an author that tells the story. Here's where I got the Mary Salome part from, brother. Uh, the St. Mary's of the Sea is a small fishing village located in the south-central coast of Mediterranean France in the Carmoga uh, region of Boucher-de-Rhone. On the 23rd of May, the eve of the festival, the gypsies on a night-long vigil in the crypt by candlelight. Now, this woman who wrote this is a Gnostic feminist wacko, just just for uh, edification. Oh, oh, yeah. By the by the way, Mike, the Gnostics. Th th there's there's a cult. There's a whole cult of like <clears throat> Freemasonic lunatics that took the legends of of the, the true legends. A, a legend is just something to be read. Right. Uh, they took the l true legends concerning. This this passage uh, overseas uh, th that ended up in southern France, and they wove all kinds of horrific per per perversity into it, which gave us the blasphemies, which I will not repeat 
that go into that evil, stupid thing, angels and demons or whatever, oh, yeah. or the Da Vinci Code, the Da Vinci Code, same idiot wrote it. So the, the, there are blasphemous French occultic, um, you know, uh, quote unquote traditions that go into this about a sacred bloodline, which we won't even talk about the origins of because it's evil and, yeah, and lies. That's not covered here. The next, by the day- way, it is Saint Mary's of the Sea. That's exactly what Saint Marie's de la Mer means. Okay, so here's what uh, the, the, what they what they write about this. First, the relics of the two Marys are lowered from their storage place high in the church. As the reliquary descends, the crowd, overcome by religious fervor reach up their hands and even hold babies at arm's length to touch the relics before they reach the ground. To achieve this means uh, one will be healed and receive a wonderful protection from misfortune. Then the statues of the two Marys. Now, she says that the two Marys at this church are Mary Salome and Mary Jacoby. Um, and then uh, they continue on, and then they take it out to the sea, as I said, then they bring it back to the church. Anyway, <clears throat> I have a lot of Marys in that story that I uh, that I wrote and that I relayed at MikeChurch.com. You could go read it for yourself. Uh, brother, what, uh, historically speaking, though, what do we know about when the uh, the day, uh, the feast day of, of uh, St. Mary Magdalene was inserted into the calendar or put on a calendar, uh, the universal calendar? Um, and... Uh, is uh, do we have a timeline on any any of that? And what do you know? Uh, do we know anything about why uh, tomorrow, the twenty second of, Ju- of of July, might have been chosen? Um, I, well, of course, usually the saints' death day is the day that they are um, celebrated on the on the on the Roman uh, missal, the right. Roman calendar. Right. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it has to do with the transfer of relics, or in the case of a bishop, sometimes if there was another feast on that day that they died, they use the day of their Episcopal consecration as the date of the feast. But um, I would assume it has something to do with historical uh, transfer of her relics. But I, you caught me flat-footed. I would look on, at Dom Jay's liturgical year, which has been years since I read the entry uh, for St. Mary Magdalene in the liturgical year. He would probably go into that, given the fact that he's French. Um, he's going to be very up on the French traditions surrounding her, um, as well as you know the universal uh, church's um, liturgical customs. You're in the middle of a Wisdom Wednesday here on the Mike Church Show here with Brother Andre Marie of the St. Benedict Center and the host of Reconquest Radio. Speaking of, well, I just happen to have a, a Dome Prosper uh, pulled up here, July 22nd, St. Mary Magdalene. Uh, three saints, said our Lord to St. Bridget of Sweden, have been more pleasing to me than all others. Mary, my mother, John the Baptist, and Mary Magdalene. Um, and of course, uh, Don Prosper is going to have a way with words that uh, I would get drawn into it. I'd read the whole thing. But while we're talking, I'll skim and see if I can find out uh, how the uh, the date was determined. Brother, let's move to the meat and taters of our Wisdom Wednesday. And that is the motto proprio that was issued by Pope Francis last Friday. Of course, uh, as I said, uh, the, the first thing that's going to backfire on the people that were agitating for this is that you're going to make 150 million, 150 million people aware of this thing called the traditional Latin mass that didn't even know it existed before it became international news that the church was basically saying, we're not going to have it anymore. That yeah. has come to fruition. I have, a, I have one guy ask me, and he goes, 
you're one of those weirdo trads that they're talking about, church. You go to this thing called <laughs> the TLM, and what is it? He didn't know. He generally did not know. And I suspect, given the poor, pathetic state of catechism uh, amongst our fellow uh, Catholics today, Brother Andre, I suspect that there are many Catholics that went, wait, wait a minute. There's another mass? They still say another mass? Where? Who? Who does this? So uh, I, I imagine that one of the things that came out of this is an awareness of the T of what's called the TLM uh, that did not exist before. Um, and now, of course, now people are rushing out to take sides and uh, to, 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 to debate this and to claim uh, 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 that it's going to have this effect or that effect. One thing is for certain. The Pope that wrote what was being rescinded, Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, is still alive. He hasn't said peep about this, um, which I could find kind of curious. Um, <clears throat> but there's so well, he much... Hasn't said, he hasn't said a peep about many of Francis's moves that you would think would be worthy of com comment. Right. Uh, I don't know where you want to start on this. Um, but there's a lot to say. Well, let's bubble up to the top. Oh, let's go up to the top. This is intended to be contraception. This is a contraceptive device. It's intended to contracept tradition. Um, that's obvious. Because Why do I say that? Because he talks about there's a clear intent uh, where he speaks of people who you know, people attached to the traditional mass who should, you know, eventually uh, return to the to the celebration of the missal according to Pope Paul VI. So there's a very, 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 very clear intention there to phase out the traditional Latin Mass, and this is just the first wave. I'm I'm convinced of that. I'm not not a prophet, but I am um, using what what I have of foresight here, um, and 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 hints are being dropped all over the place in the document. Uh, that uh, this is just the first wave, and it's clearly contraceptive. Why do I say that? Well, how do you how do you get rid of the human race? You know, how do you phase out the human race? Contraception. Hmm. How do you phase out the traditional Latin mass? Contracept baby priests. There you go. What does that mean? Don't give the new ones permit. You know, make make the permissions for the new. So, okay, so priests who are currently celebrating it, or priests who have been ordained before. Uh, the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, 2021. Right. Um, uh, 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 it, the document says, curiously enough, by the way, that they should, which is interesting. They don't say must, but it says should ask their bishop's permission to either to continue celebrating it or to begin celebrating it. Uh, then there, in the next article, it says that priests ordained after you know, the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, 2021, uh, will, will, should ask their bishop's permission, who must, the bishops must turn around and ask permission of the apostolic see. Now, that is an amazing um, invitation to a bureaucratic nightmare. Why would the Holy See want something so incredibly centralized where presumably thousands of permissions will have to go through one single office to be granted to, to grant priests the faculty to celebrate the traditional Latin mass. But by the way, they don't need the faculty. They have it. Quo primum still exists. It's untouched. 
So I know the the the, the uh, Traditionis Custodes has done nothing to alter that, uh, it, 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 to my thinking. And uh, you know, I am not a canon lawyer, but uh, but there are th- gra- there are grave theological reasons that uh, precede that ontologically precede canonical considerations on these questions. Brother, can so I? Can every I, priest of the Roman Rite has a right to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass. Period. That has not been altered. Did you happen to catch my interview with Dr. Anthony Stein? No, I, I didn't, Mike. Uh, I, I was buried. It's okay. yeah, obviously, it's you right. know, it's like when you're away for a week, you come back and you're buried. Okay, so the reason I ask is because, and I, he's going to do a thing on Quo Primum, and he and I talked about it. He also sent me a video from Father Hesse. It's either Hesse or Hesse. Uh, it's Hesse. It's Hesse. I, yeah. And, and <laughs> Fa- Father Hesse's wonderful little video. It's only not. It's a little lecture he was giving. It's only nine minutes long, but it's about Quo Primum. And Father Hesse says, pick your missile up, open it up before you even get to the text of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, Romana Rosali. Uh, you're going to they're going to in, in each one of those missiles is going to be referenced quo primum. And uh, Dr. Stein says that he thinks that Father Hesse was correct or is correct because I think Father Hesse is dead. Right. Canon Hesse is dead. Yes. Okay, Canon Hesse. Canon Hesse uh, says, Quote Primum says that you can't stop. That this, that this is in, in, in binding in perpetuity. And he also gets into in this video, I could play you a clip of it if you haven't heard it lately. It's really good. He also says that the question that would come up can a pope bind future popes? Um, well, on a question like that, Canon Hesse says, absolutely, and he did. Well, a pope can bind future popes in certain matters. I mean, obviously, when you're talking about infallible doctrine and so forth, uh, not on minute points of, of, of canon law, which canon law can be can be uh, altered. Yes. But, but, again, bubbling up to the top, we're dealing with an ancient liturgy here. We're not dealing with some uh, set of reforms that came out uh, even th- this is one reason I ha- hate. There, there was an incredibly inept reference to Quo Primum, although although not by name. There's a reference to the author of Quo Primum, and it's clearly talking about what he did in Quo Primum, right? Namely, um, uh, Papa Gislieri, Michele Gislieri, known as by in his by his papal name, uh, Pi- Saint Pius V, uh, and what he did in in promulgating Quo Primum. So Pope Francis says, you know, in, in doing what I'm doing, I'm consoled to know that that uh, Pope that there's a precedent. You know, he's, he's actually citing a precedent, <laughs> a precedent that does the exact opposite of what he's doing. <laughs> and he so he says the precedent is that you know, uh, Pius, Pius, Saint Pius V in in promulgating the 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 uh, you know tra- traditional missal uh, in in what was it? I think it was 1588. Uh, he uh, he suppressed all masses that were 200 years or, or or younger, so 200 years old or younger. So you had various, you know, this in the West we've always had more than just the Roman Rite. Aside from the Mozarabic Rites and the Ambrosian Rites, you had various um, rites that that were offered by religious orders, usually just sort of their own particular use would be the proper word, 
uh, of the Roman Rite. So you had the Carthusian Rite, you have the Dominican Rite, you have uh, the uh, Norbertine Rite. And these were they had their own little interesting sort of monastic observances wound up into the rite that was different than the way the Roman rite was celebrated in various parishes. They had their saints' names in it, and you know, and some of the changes or some of the differences were quite stunning. You know, so that a, a person who walked into a Dominican or a Norbertine mass thinking it was a normal parish mass according to the to the traditional Roman rite would be a little bit astonished. Like, what's he doing there? You know, why is he holding his arms up like that? You know, the diff- different uses. But okay, so there were several though that were ancient, and but there were several that 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 were were newer and that were less than two hundred years old. And two hundred years old sort of became the kind of the watermark for establishing what was of immemorial custom. So the church said, if you can't establish an immemorial custom, if you can't establish it as two hundred years or older, it's suppressed. Okay, um, but what Pius V did not do was construct a new missile out of whole cloth, or even a new missile out of you know mo- you know p- partly new cloth. What he did was clean up because various accretions and so forth had gotten into missiles, inaccuracies, redundancies that weren't in the originals, and so forth. He they 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 went into the Vatican Library and got the the best editions. They published a missile that was a cleaned up, you know, sort of expurgated of impurities that had entered in uh, specimen of the missile. And not only that, this is during the middle of the Protestant revolt when a lot of Catholic bishops were Protestant simps. And you had uh, and you had Protestants who hadn't announced themselves as Protestants and so forth still doing the missile, but they were altering little little things here and there. So Pius V, who was himself an inquisitor. Michele Gislieri was an inquisitor before he ever became pope. He understood that that they were that, that heresy was hiding in sort of liturgical reforms that were happening, you know, unapproved reforms, quote unquote, that were happening. Okay. So they wanted to make it super clear who the Catholics are. So here, you 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 want to know who the Catholics are? They're the ones that follow this missile. And obviously, he's talking about the Roman rite. He didn't mean to touch the Byzantine rites or the ancient rites, other ancient rites of the East. So he promulgates this this missile, which is simply a codification of the traditional mass. And what he did was he protected the traditions that he himself had received. He didn't come up with something new. That's why I don't like calling it the Tridentine Mass, because Tridentine is the adjective that means of or pertaining to the Council of Trent. You know, you could call the Missile of Paul VI, arguably, you could call the Mass of Vatican II. You cannot call the, the, the traditional Latin Mass the Mass of the Council of Trent. Only, you know, it would, be a, it would, it would torture the, the meaning of those words to call it that. It's the classical Roman Rite. It's the Roman Rite, as far as I'm concerned. It is uh, the ancient Roman Rite, the Usus Antiquior, whatever you want to call it, other than the Tridentine Mass. Um, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's classical. It's ancient. Um, so what Pius V did wasn't simply – we're all legal positivists now, Mike, even in the church. You don't get liturgy by fiat, okay? That's not the tradition of the church. So the the idea that Pius – well, Pius V promulgated a new missile, so Paul VI could promulgate a new missile. That argument doesn't hold because that's not what Pius V did. Correct. So, so in talking about the legal status of the traditional mass, 
it actually even antedates Pius V's missal. It's tradition. You don't suppress. And when when the nine cardinals were summoned by John Paul II to to look at the status, legal status of the traditional mass, they said, I, th- I think it was eight unanimously and one abstention, said that the traditional mass had never been abrogated. Now, I believe that, that uh, I don't think that their study was ever published. I don't think that what they wrote was ever published. But um, because it, because that was that had to remain secret, right? Until you know Benedict XVI came out and said, "Yeah, it was never abrogated." Right? The traditional missile. He didn't say quo primum was never abrogated. He said the traditional mass was never abrogated. So the question is, can it even be abrogated? I don't think it can. I don't think you can abrogate tradition. Not even the Pope. So th- there's a, there's a papal positivism and a legal positivism that 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 underlies a lot of the sloppy thinking about this. Brother, we may need uh, for the sake of explanation and for the benefit of many who are new listeners, and we have almost a hundred have signed signed up thanks to Kennedy. May need to explain what a what legal briefly what legal positivism is, so everyone uh, is on the same page. Well, le- legal positivism. Um, is a, is a way of sidestepping or ignoring or sort of mentally suppressing the concept of the natural law and also the concept that uh, in the, in the church that there are that there is a that there are laws such as custom which uh, antedate and antecede uh, positive law what's positive law positive law is law that is posited that is to say put down by a legislator. So canon law is positive law. By the way, I'm not against positive law. There needs to be positive law. But uh, positive law is law that is posited. And, and, and posited in this sense, think of the word in English, deposit, right? right? You, you put it down in the bank. So the lawgiver posits some new law to address some new situation, uh, that's perfectly legitimate. I mean, assuming the legitimacy of the law and that it doesn't contradict something uh, of higher rank that 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 um, antecedes it. But the, so this is so legal positivism scrubs all that and says no 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 no. Law is limited exclusively to the the diktat of the legislator. That's it. That's it. That's law. So legal positivists in 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 our in our good old United States of America um, would say that the natural law doesn't enter into legal uh, theory or uh, jurisprudence at all. And by and by the way, brother uh, Joseph Finn, who is a professor of law at Notre Dame, and wrote a brilliant article for uh, First Things in the May issue, the print issue, that Roe versus Wade is not constitutional. Cites positivism, cites the law, and he's and he and and he says, um, and by the by, he also doubled as Amy as the notorious ACB's law professor, uh, but Professor Finn says that all of the tradition, legal and otherwise, leading up to the Fourteenth Amendment and afterwards, say that abortion has always been illegal. It was never legal anywhere, never. And there were laws, and in some instances, he cited a law in Massachusetts. He said there was a law in the books in Massachusetts that made it illegal. 
So when Blackman came up with this lie that it had never been, the tradition was that it would never, that it had never been illegal, which was a total fabrication, then the Supreme Court got busy with legal positivism and invented the law uh, that we call Roe versus or or supposedly the precedent, the legal precedent that is Roe versus Wade. I just want to drop that in. Uh, brother, I have father, I have Canaan Hessen pulled up here. Let's just listen to a minute of this. Um, so people have a third voice on this. Um, Canaan Hesse is a very wise man. Uh, there's a whole collection of his lectures on YouTube that you can watch. Uh, I think I probably listened to them all because Steve Cunningham sent them all to me on a CD. So I think I've probably heard uh, hours upon hours of Canon Hesse. And I didn't know he was Canon Hesse, brother. So thanks for straightening that out for me. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, here you go. The fathers of Trent therefore said that the Pope could not change the rights. Is that my interpretation or is it papal teaching? It is implicit papal teaching because have you ever held a Roman Missal in your hands? Well, if you get a chance, look up the first decrees at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the Roman Missal, you will find the decree Quo Primum by Pius V. And as the only exception in church history, you will not only find Pius V's decree, but you will find three other decrees. All through church history, no pope published a book without canceling his predecessor's document if there was one. The typical way, for example, of publishing the Code of Canon Law or the Corpus Juris Canonici that was the predecessor before 1916 would be to authorize a new edition and put in one's document, like Pope uh, Pope uh, Urban the Ninth would put in his name and throw out his predecessor's decree. The Roman Missal, since 1570, is the only exception in church history. Why? Because Pius V did nothing else but respect the Council of Trent when he codified what was there. When Pius, XII, when Pius V, St. Pius V, in 1570, published the Roman Missal, he did not change anything. He changed a few little rubrics that were kind of, uh, how do you say, uh, they were not clear, they were kind of confusing, and uh, so he changed them. But the book as such was the Missal that had been used for centuries by the Roman Curia. And he canonized it with the decree quo primum in which he says not only the book must never be changed in the future this mass must be said by all priests in the future but the decree as such is irreformable so that's just a a, a little a little taste of canon has i'll pop the link in the chat room if you want to watch the whole video it's only nine minutes long maggie has put the link to all of father hess's or canon hess's uh, lectures that are on YouTube and a playlist that you can get also in the chat room. Uh, brother, uh, Canon Hesse, correct? Uh, well, Canon Hesse was a canon lawyer. And by the way, he's called Canon Hesse not because he was a canon lawyer. You don't call canon lawyers canon. But he was a canon lawyer, I believe. Um, he worked also for the, for the Vatican Librarian for a time. He was close to, um, what's his name? Cardinal, ah, the name, uh, Stickler, Stickler, Cardinal Stickler. Um, yeah, I, I would assume he is correct, but I mean, I, I, so he's saying the decree itself is irreformable. I don't, I don't uh, know enough 
uh, you know, church law to say that that's an unimpeachable um, conclusion. It, it seems to me that Pope after Pope after Pope after Pope has, as he points out, included it in the introduction of all the missiles that they've, you know, various editio, ediciones tipice that they've put out. Um, uh, they have always included quo primum. That's true. So they ha- seem to think it's untouchable. Uh, uh, so I think that's a powerful argument. Is it a slam dunk? Uh, he's saying it's implicit papal teaching. That seems to carry serious weight. My argument was antecedent even to quote primum, the missile of ancient use is, is something that's unsuppressible. You could, I mean, certain things, in, it, it might, and it gets really hairy when you get into it. Yeah, I understand, but I understand. This particular medieval uh, sequence was suppressed by Pope so-and-so, and now we only have, you know, f- uh, five sequences in the Roman Rite. Okay, yeah, and the Popes had authority to do that. Uh, but, 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 but again, bubbling up to the top, do, does any Pope have the authority wholesale to abrogate the Roman Rite? And to take something that's 52 years old and say, this is the Roman right, so much as to say that this is the sole lexerandi of the Roman right, which pe- commentators are coming out of the woodwork saying that that's unacceptable. I mean, you've got, even, you've got Father, um, uh, Father, what's his name? B- uh, Father uh, Charles Pope. Coming out now. This is a pe- he's Monsignor. Says, he's Monsignor Charles. Thank Pope. you, Monsignor Pope of the Diocese of Washington D.C. Archdiocese of Washington D.C. Coming out and saying that this is unacceptable. That it, you, you know that this is papal positivism at its worst to say this is the sole lexerandi of the Catholic Church uh, of the Roman Rite. No, you don't. It's not even Roman. <laughs> well, it is wrong. I mean, well, well kind I mean, of. Arguably, right. it is. But you, you, you can't take the you can't take a, a fiat liturgy and say this is the sole lexerandi of the Roman Church. The lexerandi of the Roman Church includes all of the missiles that r- were in the Roman Church. You know, the 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 the, the Gallo-Roman missiles of of the Carolingian era, the the more ancient Roman missiles before the 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 Alcuin and and, and got his hands on uh, altering it and importing Gallican elements into the Roman liturgy, the Gelasian missile and the and Gelasian sacramentary, all of these ancient texts are our tradition, and they form the Lex Arandi. Um, if you look up, there, there's a, I noticed that the Catholicism.org website got pinged a lot on an article that I had put out years ago called Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, explaining what this even means, because a lot of people don't know. People, people uh, will talk about it a lot, but a lot of people don't know. Well, okay, the law of praying law. is the law of believing. What does that even mean, though? Well, in con- it, it, the original context of it, was by uh, St. Prosper of Aquitaine, who was arguing in an anti-Pelagian piece that he was writing against the Pelagian heresy that denies the church's teachings on grace. He says, look, you want to know what Catholics believe about this? Look at our ancient liturgy. He quotes the the solemn prayers uh, of um, Good Friday, prayers that we still have in the traditional Roman rites. Right. They've been seriously altered in the new rite, and but but of course Benedict the Sixteenth, you know, altered them in in the traditional rite. But the solemn prayers are ancient, uh, 
And Prosper was saying, look at these prayers and you'll see implicit in these prayers the church's true teaching on grace. And he argues from that. But he lays it down as a principle. The law of prayer is a law of belief. Um, he actually, what, what he originally said was not lex orandi lex credendi. That's kind of a truncation of the, of the verbiage he used. But that's the general principle that he employed. And that principle has been used ever since in the life of the church to say, if you want to know what we believe, it's not simply papal infallible pronouncements. Yes, those are there. Those are there for when doctrines get denied or attacked or whatever, the Pope uses his highest authority to get up and define a, a doctrine. But if you look at the, the various um, encyclicals or bulls or whatever that Popes use, they often will, as Pius XII did in his um, definition concerning the assumption of Our Lady, they will point to the ancient liturgical tradition of celebrating this thing as a feast, or they'll point out, point to its its use, its its the, the truth of the doctrine they're def now defining being displayed in the Church's liturgical tradition, not only in the West, in the Roman Rite, but also in the East. Uh, this is a frequent thing for us to do. So, uh, so the the recourse that popes have had over the years to this rule this sort of rule of faith this this uh this is a source liturgy is a source of tradition right so when we talk about tradition and scripture one of the sources of tradition is the is the liturgy well you don't say that that source that lex Arandi, i'm erasing everything that came before 1970 and now, we're, now we're sort of doing a reset. You know, the great reset of the Church's Lex Orandi. That's how someone <laughs> described it. That I think is really brilliant. That what this is what the now the great Catholic great reset along with the great Corona doom great reset. What a coincidence! Yeah, I, and I don't think it's a coincidence. But uh, of th there is yes, there th there is something um, afoot here that's that's bigger that I I, I don't even want to attempt to to try to describe it nope. because it's because the true authors of it are invisible. But uh, clearly, Mike, he he has no authority to simply deny a fact. The fact is that the Lex Orandi of the Catholic Church of the Roman Rite antedates 1970. That's right. We had an audio clip from a cardinal from two years ago. Maggie, do you remember what the cardinal's name was? I can't remember his name. Uh, it was going, the Catholic Church did not begin in 1970. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this is ridiculous what these people Mike, are saying. Mike, there are factual errors. Dr. Krasnowski has already pointed out multiple factual errors in the, in the, in the letter and in the, and in the document itself. Um, it's, it's, it's a sloppy document. It's not clear. It was implemented immediately which is unbelievable because the prescriptions of it are so far reaching. I mean, the presumed prescriptions, the pretended prescriptions. Again, I don't think it I don't think it could suppress the Roman rite, the traditional Roman rite. But the 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 what it's saying must be done is so far reaching and so extreme and and applies to so many people that implementing it immediately especially in light of the fact that some passages like the thing about parochial churches is are so it's it's 
it's so unclear and there's an implicit contradiction in the document on that very point that obviously tons of questions are going to be going to the Holy See by bishops who really want to know, what do you mean? Um, so far, uh, Mike, the best reaction of a bishop has been the, the reaction of Bishop Cordelione. And why do I say that? Now, for clarification, folks, here, you're listening to Wisdom Wednesday with me, Mike Church, Mike Church Show here on the Crusade Channel, and Brother Andre Marie of the St. Benedict Center in Richmond, New Hampshire, and the host of Reconquest Radio. And Bishop Corleone is the uh, is the bishop of the diocese in which Nancy Pelosi lives in San Francisco. And yeah. the cardinal I was referencing, brother, just for uh, your edification, is Cardinal, uh, cardinal Arenz. Arinze, yeah, Arinze. Cardinal Arinze, who's now retired. Um, yeah, he, he was the head of the Congregation for Divine Worship, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, yeah, an, an African. Um, I think he was Nigerian. Um, yeah, so uh, Archbishop Cordelione, okay, so if you look on the Rorate Celli website, I which I don't, always, I don't always agree with those guys, I, 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 in, in general, I, 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 like, I like them. I mean, they, they, they uh, well, I won't talk about any disagreements I have with them. It's not, it's not odd rem. I have it up, brother. If you look at the Rorate Celli link that I just stuck in the chat room, you'll see that they're calling on bishops to use the, the Code of Canon Law, Canon 87, Paragraph 1, uh, to uh, – now, the, the word would not be nullify, but the, uh, to – and I just put in, in the link so that people can look that one up themselves, where that is in the code. But it, it's it, – th that, that says a diocesan bishop, whenever he – uh, judges that it contributes to their spiritual good is able to dispense the faithful from the universal and particular disciplinary laws issued for the territory or his subjects by the supreme authority of the church. Then it goes on to talk about what he's not able to dispense, and it's using technical um, language of canon law. So there, I just popped that in the in the chat room. Um, what the author uh, at Rorate Celli was saying is, I'm calling on all bishops to to have um, to resort to this, to use this document, this Code of Canon Law, 1983, published by John Paul II, take Canon 87, Paragraph 1, and implement it in your diocese as regards Traditionis Custodes, and simply, for the spiritual good of your faithful, dispense them, dispense every priest, dispense all the lay faithful from this, this you know, presumed universal law, Right. Now this and, and they be, say this, in big bold uh, red text, brother. We plead with all prelates of goodwill, all shepherds who love and care for their flock, for the spiritual good of all the faithful clergy yep. and laity. So this goes by out the, to all of us. By the way, I misspoke, and I appreciate Ch uh, Cesare, our, our friend in the chat room. It was actually Bishop Papraki. I, I guess it's probably Paprotsky, right? But he's, I think he says Paprotsky. Uh, for uh, he's the one who who took that advice. Now I'm not saying he got it from Araticelli, but he himself referenced this part of the code and said, "I'm I'm simply dispensing the priests of my diocese from this." So and so basically, what he's saying is, yeah, uh, no change here, no change. Now, Cordelione did come out with something good very early on and say, "I'm just allowing all the priests to continue doing what they were doing." 
uh, with the traditional Latin mass. Can I tell you that Friday night on the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, we were blessed with a great grace <clears throat> to have Archbishop Gregory Amond in attendance at our Latin mass. He attended. He read the gospel. He read the, the epistle and the gospel for us and gave the homily. In his homily, Brother Andre, he said, in this diocese, no change. He, he, he even said, we have seven locations in this diocese where yeah. the Tritiel and the traditional Latin Mass is said, it will continue to be said there. Yeah, the, there's a, there's a um, an article on the LifeSite News website where they're doing a rundown. There are a few sites that are sort of keeping score right now of what's going on, you know, bishops who are who are taking the ball and run. You know, Pope Francis clearly in this motu proprio and the letter to the bishops is handing a sledgehammer to the bishops and saying to those who want to take it, take and smash. And, there you, go. you know, Hulk, you know, Hulk you, smash. You, exactly. Hulk smash. <laughs> Hulk smash. Yes. Your eminence smash. Um, and, you know, take take the hammer to the traditional Latin mass. It's hammer time. We're going to get rid of this thing. So and he knows that any number of people, especially the ones he appointed, are going to do that. But he, but he doesn't know. But he, he also knows that some won't. But that's okay. He also knows that they're going to die, and they'll be replaced, if not by him, by his successor, whom he thinks is going to be just like him, because he's packed the College of Cardinals. Uh, you know, and somebody so, told me a story once that the, that in nineteen ten, uh, that w w when did uh, Leo the Thirteenth of Blessed Memory die? What do you know? What year? Um, so I, I want to say, uh, 1890, uh, well, it, it was, no, no, he was Pope in 1899, uh, or very early 20th century. I want to say 1907, six, seven. I can't remember like who told me the story. It might've been Chris Ferrara that, um, that they thought that they had the college packed as well. Um, and that they couldn't come to a decision. So the second uh, uh, pope that they offered up was Giuseppe Sarto, so uh, St. Pope Pius X. And they thought that they, and they, and they went with him because they thought he was malleable because he was so obedient. And they thought yeah, that the he would do what they would, that he would, you know, continue the henchmen or whatever, or whatever their designs were. And, and of course, he shocked them all by what he actually did. Well, there were reasons for them to think that he was—he was kind of a rustic. He was not—he uh, was not in the—you know—he was not a diplomat. He wasn't—he was kind of an academic. He had taught a seminary, but he wasn't—you uh, know—from the uh, sort of the highfalutin upper echelons of academia. But uh, above all, he wasn't a curialist. He was a pastor. Huh? He was a parish priest who rose up the ranks to the episcopacy slowly. Um, uh, uh, but all the way as a pastor, his route to the papacy was, was rather atypical in that regard. And he was kind of a rustic fellow and so forth. Not to say he wasn't educated or intelligent. But what they weren't counting on was Mary Delval. Who, when when Pope Saint Pius V, you know um, Giuseppe Sarto was weeping over the prospect that he might be selected Pope because the balloting, the way the balloting was going, it looked like they were going towards him, and he was weeping and and um, he he got sort of caught by Mary Del Val, uh, praying and in tears, you know, and and the two of them started talking and. And Mary Delval basically said, um, "Yeah, you, it would be cowardice for you not to accept, because if if if, the, if they select you, you 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 must accept, because uh, God's calling you to do this uh, to this heavy burden." And P Pius X said, uh, "You know, Sarto Giuseppe Sarto, uh, Cardinal said, uh, well, I'll accept if you become my Secretary of State.'" And he did. So now. 
Mary Delval was no fool, and he was nobody's fool, and he broke. He did not broach fools lightly. Uh, he was a son of a diplomat. He was multilingual. He was cultured. He was he was well traveled. He 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 knew people. He could he could smell a rat, you know. So uh, he was an important sort of uh, chief lieutenant, as it were, for Pope Saint Pius X. So the 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 Freemasons. Uh, were counting after Rampola got um, blackballed by the uh, by the emperor who acted through a Polish bishop. Uh, then, uh, then the, the, the Freemasons uh, and their and their uh, fellow travelers sort of decided, well, well, we'll just pick this guy. You know, we can we can easily manipulate him. <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> Brother, so, a couple yeah, little uh, a little. When I said he's packing the College of Cardinals, I don't mean that that's going to be effective. You know, okay. Uh, the College of Cardinals could be easily you know decimated by uh, a, a divinely sent plague. I mean, you know, man proposed. <laughs> God and I'm not saying for that. I'm, I'm stating facts. There are prophecies. Pope St. Pius X himself prophesied one of his successors walking out of escaping Rome over the bodies of dead cardinals. So when I say this, I'm not blowing smoke. No, I know Look at not. the vision part of the third secret of Fatima. That's right. I wish no evil upon any of these men. I wish their conversion. But uh, but but what I'm saying is, man proposes, God disposes. What you know, if, if Pope Francis thinks that what he's doing is going to be uh, of long duration, well, the fact that he's undoing something that was done only in 2007 <laughs> is proof that such a thing can be undone quickly. Well, right? Hoisted by your own petard. I, I was going to offer two small factoids. One, and I believe the same person that told me about how Giuseppe Sarto became uh, Saint Paul Pius X told me, brother, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, 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 which one of the emperors? Would it have been uh, a Habsburg? One of the emperors actually kind of had in the College of Cardinals a veto? Okay, so there was a Polish bishop whose name escapes me. Cesare might recall it. Wait, was he Polish or or, or was he uh, Austrian? He was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay. um, And, or the Austrian Empire. Uh, and um, keep in mind that part of Poland was in that empire. Read Charles um, Colomb's book, and you'll learn all of this. Card- by the way, Cardinal Sophie, Cardinal Sapieha, Sapieha, I'm sorry, Cesare, I'm probably butchering it, but Sapieha, yeah, that's the one. And he was Polish, right, Cesare? I'm pretty sure he's Polish, but he was he was from the empire. He was instructed by the 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 emperor to cast a veto because there was an old and hardly ever, if ever, used um, uh, provision which allowed the emperor to veto one candidate that had been chosen by the cardinals. Little so known fact. He, he, was a car, he was a cardinal archbishop of Krakow. Thank you, Cesare. Um, so the, uh, he, he, what he did was – what. Because it had been known that Rampola was a Freemason, it had been discovered. Uh, this word got to the uh, to the emperor. He gave Sapieha, or how we say his name, Sapieha. Uh, he gave him the faculty. He said, "Go when when you're in the uh, the the uh, conclave. If Rampola gets elected, you cast my veto." And that's exactly <laughs> that's what happened. Apparently, to everybody's astonishment. 
Um, then, then Pius X, when he becomes Pope, discovers that Rampolla was a Freemason. He says that miserable man, that wretched man. Uh, and unfortunately, he, he ordered that all the evidence get burned. But he, I think he wanted to avoid scandal in the church. And it's and it's factoid number two. Somebody beat me to it, but I still was going to drop it in five minutes ago. Uh, Cardinal Mary Duval composed that wonderful little prayer that many of us say every day. Uh, I try to say in front of the Blessed Sacrament whenever I get the chance, and that's the litany of humility. Um, yeah. And third factoid: our mutual friend, our dear friend Ryan Grant, has been threat- threatening for years to write a biography of Cardinal Mary Duval. I don't think he ever did it. But he has a lot of history on Cardinal Mary Duval. Just so. I, if, I, if, if my memory serves me, he was an Irish-Spanish son of a diplomat. Um, and Mary, I think, is an Irish name, M-E-R-R-Y, like, almost like, like Mary and Pippin in, in uh, The Hobbit. Um, or in, uh, rather, the uh, Lord of the World, Lord of the Rings. Uh, but he was a... He was a, um, he was a um, I know he was a son of a diplomat, came from a diplomatic family, and I think they had lived in England, but he was multilingual for that reason, and moving around in diplomatic circles, he understood um, how to deal with cynical people, how to, how, to, how to walk around the halls of power and not be um, just taken by the power and the appearance of, of the people who, who operate there. He, he knew sort of the inner game, as it were, of, of diplomacy. Brother, brother, it's interesting to me. One thing I will take away from this conversation with you today, and I hope all of our listeners will take it away as well, something that you said, uh, you may not have thought that it was, um, uh, uh, <clears throat> What's the word that uh, El Rushbo used to use uh, to describe something momentous? Starts with a P and I can't remember it. In any event, what an irony that the Holy Father Pope Francis is thinking as in secular human terms, as in how things are going to transpire and play out. And not even considering that, well, you know, God kind of has a voice in all this. (laughs) Yeah, your decree yeah. may not last because, or the Holy Ghost may go like, yeah, nice try, Francis, but uh, how about new? No? Uh, yeah. That that there is a we always talk about it just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's there. That the Holy Ghost and we were promised by our Lord Himself that the Paraclete would come, right, brother, and that the Paraclete would protect us. And would and that's what we, and, that, and that's what people that are in despair over this you you you, you got to say to yourself and you got to remind yourself and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir to many people but and as Father Wolf is fond of saying in many of his sermons we can't hear him anymore but we do have him on Memorex it's God's church it's our Lord's church he's in charge and he knows what he's doing so stop fearing stop the fear stop the the the, the, the depression you can't do that. And I think that uh, all he did was cast into motion some events that we don't know the uh, the outcome of them. But I trust in the promise that the Holy Ghost will prevail. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, God works good out of evil. Sure. Right? We know that. I, and, and people have heard me say that uh, time and time again. But we need. it's one of those things we need to remind ourselves of uh, because there's a lot of evil in the world. Uh, and God can work good, and and will work will work good out of out of this evil. There's no question of yeah, that sure in my mind. I think he already I think he already has. 
but yeah, it, it'll it'll cause a lot of suffering, a lot of angst. Um, but I think, uh, well, well, one little good thing is, um, at the very least, it does away with the what I think is a ridiculous um, construction that is to call the traditional liturgy the extra, extraordinary form. Pope Francis did sort of obliterate that. And I think that that was none too soon. I, nobody really, I don't think anybody really liked it, calling yeah. it the extraordinary form. People that rushed to call it the extraordinary form, I think, were doing it uh, because they wanted to look like they were snapping into line with what Benedict said. But um, uh, Archbishop Amon mentioned that in his uh, remarks to us that it, it, it shouldn't be called the extraordinary form. He actually said that. By, by the word, brother, the El Rushbo word that I was searching for is. And somebody put profound. It's not what Dale Rushbo said. He he said, "You've just thundered a profundity." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he was a brother. Andre gave us a profundity. <laughs> uh, well, well, hey, uh, I, I guess you know, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if, you, if I, I just dropped a link in into the chat room because obviously we don't have time to go over. No. Know, each of the eight articles and the and the and the six paragraphs of Article Three uh, of the document, or uh, everything that Pope says in his letter, I, I gave what I think is the, the the executive summary. This is an attempt at the contraception of the traditional Roman rites. Right. That's what it is. And I think, and brother, I think, where there was contraception, per brother Andre Marie, you're guaranteed to get what? Abortion. Oh yeah. Yeah. So follow your yeah. own uh, previous episode of Reconquest. So if you're going to have contraception, you're going to have abortions. Yeah. Legal. Oh yeah, yeah. You're going to have legal yeah, contraception. So, you're going to have legal abortions. Yeah. So there, there is a there's an a, there. So some of the bishops are taking this ball and run with it. Some running with it. Some of them are taking that sledgehammer and take and taking the sledgehammer to the traditional liturgy. Um, but you know what's going to happen? <laughs> You know what's going to happen? The, the Society of St. Pius X is going to grow. I predicted that, by the way, before the document came out. Not because I'm a genius. I think you have to be an idiot not to see it. Sure. Um, the, 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 when I heard that there was a move afoot, you know, that, that, that the Pope had some designs on, on the traditional Latin Mass and that there was going to be some limiting of the traditional Latin Mass, um, I said, well, all, all that's going to do is drive a lot of people that don't have access to it uh, uh, to, to go to the uh, to the SSPX. And by the way, that includes not only lay faithful, but priests. There, there are going to be priests who are going to join the SSPX. And I think there are going to be seminarians. Uh, now that I know the provisions of the document, I think there are going to be some seminarians uh, you know, future baby priests who would have to get that double per permission that I referred to earlier yep. to say the traditional right. I think a lot of them are going to say, okay, well, I was content to say both the Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass. Pope Francis has made that impossible. So I'm just going to try to join the Fraternity of St. Peter or the Institute of Christ the King or whatever. And now both of these institutions have waiting lists to get in. So either they're going to, you know, marshal all the resources they can and, 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 and expand their infrastructure, you know, so that they can accommodate uh, additional waves of seminarians. I don't think the Institute will, by the way, because they're very um, purposefully, uh, they keep things at a modest level so that they don't get um, diluted. And by the way, brother, uh, Canon Tallarico was here last, here last week. Oh, cool. I like him. I didn't yeah, get to see I, him, but he was here. 
Yeah. I think he's the American delegate, or I don't forget his exact title, but he's like the head of the um, institute in this country. Uh, Brother, we're just about out of time. Uh, It's been a a great conversation. I want to drop one more profundity on you. Um, (laughs) The International Fatima Pilgrimage Statue came, and I got to talk to the the gentleman who was the curator, and um, his name is Larry, uh, Larry Maginot. And I said, Maginot as in Maginot line. He goes, you got it. That was my grandfather. And I went, really? He goes, not really. But yes, I am from the Maginot family. Um, The artist that did the pilgrimage statue that is now in the United States, it's in the Diocese of Lafayette this week, I believe. Next week or in two weeks, it'll be in the Diocese of, of Lake Charles. And then Ashley and Don, are you listening? It goes to Tampa, Florida. So uh, I talked to, me, to Mr. Larry, and I, I asked him, brother, I said, I've seen some beautiful statues of Our Lady of Fatima. Maybe Maggie can pop one in the chat room for us. I've never seen one that is as striking as this one. Now, brother, this is the one that cried. She wept in August of 1972 on the week. She was here that week, and it was the first week of the first ever um, debauchery festival What's it, uh, uh, not not the, uh, the uh, decadence, the decadence festival, the sodomite festival. She wept. The Supreme Court was also uh, considering uh, the case of Norma McCorvey at the time. And the the statue wept. David Simpson's father, Mr. Marion Simpson, was given the tears. He was a official head, uh, head of pathology for the city of New Orleans. And they didn't tell him what it was. He handed it back and said, why did you give me a vial of human tears? Um, uh, uh, it was Father Bear that had reported the miracle. And it was Bishop Hannon at the time. Uh, it was sent to the Vatican, and they approved it for a local devotion. So we have that here in New Orleans. But there are three things about the Fatima statue. There she is. She's in the chat room of that particular Fatima statue that Larry told me that I don't think very many people know. You might not even know it. And I said, well, what makes this statue, the pilgrimage statue, went so profound? And, and I said, is this like, like is this the likeness that Sister, uh, <clears throat> that Sister Lucia would say was, uh, was the, as close as she's ever seen? He goes, yes, it is. And he goes, there was a precursor to this statue that is now the official statue of, of, for Fatima in that diocese in, 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 uh, uh, in Fatima in Portugal. And when Sister Lucia, who had been cloistered for so many years, she'd never seen a statue. So Mr. Larry told me that in 1940, she was shown that the original Fatima statue. She said, nah, not so good. <laughs> And then an then inquiry, the bishop said, well, what's wrong with it? And there were three things that were changed and are part of this statue. And I, uh, I, you know, I'm a history nerd, so I couldn't wait to tell people this. Number one, many of your Fatima statues, mine included, have on Our Lady's uh, uh, long veil or cape or whatever you would call it. <clears throat> Not sure if there's a term for it. Um, you see the gold trim in the picture in the chat room at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. Most statues have some some lacy frill, like fl- florets coming off the trim. Sister Lucia said, no, 
It was just gold trim, just a one-inch piping gold trim. That's one change. Two, uh, all of the other statues, Our Lady has tassels hanging uh, that uh, from her from her tunic. She goes. She had no tassels. There were no tassels. Um, three. Look very closely at her arms and her hands where she's in the all-rons position, uh, where the sleeve of her tunic meets her, her, her wrist, brother. All the other statues have long, very, uh, you know, 12 inches in diameter or so uh, at the end of the sleeve, right? It's very, very open. Sister Lucia said no. That fabric was tight around her wrist and it was banded in gold. And then the fourth one, I forgot there's four is, uh, oh no, in place of the tassel, Sister Lucia said she had a gold, a golden globe. A golden globe. And that's the uh, that's the one you see there. So Sister Lucia said, and she said, this artist got the eyes correct. She goes, I'll never forget the eyes. And the way he did the eyes, uh, those are those exactly, exactly as Our Lady looked. So if you want to know what the Mother of God looked like, at Portugal, in Fatima, Portugal, on May the 13th, June the 13th, July the 13th, well, not on August the 13th, but shortly after, September 13th, that's what she looked like. And she, and I'm sure you know this, brother, she appeared on October the 13th as Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Um, and then another... She did. I, I, yeah, and another thing, uh, note the Star of Esther on her left... Uh, on her left shin, or near her left shin. Uh, Get Mariana Bartold's great book, Fatima, Secrets, Science and Secrets, uh, Signs and Secrets, and Mariana Bartold does the best job of anyone that ever lived of explaining the Star of Esther and its importance. So there's your Fatima trivia for the day. Uh, everything you ever want to know about our statue of Our Lady of Fatima, but we're afraid to ask. Uh, brother, what is coming up on tonight's episode of Reconquest? Tonight's episode of Reconquest is um, episode number 287, as we uh, have said, and it's called The Ultimate Felicity of Man. The uh, Are you solo? I'm solo, yeah. yeah. I'm working on a guest for my next one right now, but Dr. Krasniewski hasn't gotten back to me. <laughs> so I'm sure he's busy these days. Okay, so the ultimate, no, what is this about? Can you tell us a little bit about it? I'm curious. And, uh, so uh, I, as as people who read me regularly <laughs> okay. know, I've been on a Yosef Pieper kick lately. Uh-huh. And um, I'm, I'm reading his wonderful book uh, on prudence. Uh, actually, it's his wonderful book on the four cardinal virtues, entitled, strangely enough, The Four Cardinal Virtues. And the first section is on the first of the cardinal virtues, uh, prudence. So I, I've just finished, although it's not published yet, the third installment. I've just finished a three-installment mini-series of Ad Rem on this um, subject of prudence. And I'm using Yosef Pieper. In fact, one of our listeners uh, told me, uh, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start reading Peeper now. You, you've convinced well, me. Well, you scared me away. You convinced me, but then you horrified me by saying it was taking you a long time to read. I'm like, brother's like an encyclopedia. Well, he's, a I'm not, he's a reading I, machine. Well, <laughs> no, no, I'm not a fast reader, but I, I, I'm deliberately reading it slowly. I'm going back and rereading parts. Peeper's, Peeper's a deep thinker. Um, okay. And um, so so uh, the uh, the the because I've been reading Peeper a bunch, 
as I was doing some uh, uh, additional research on Prudence uh, and Peeper, I came up across an article written by an old friend of mine, Dr. Robert Hickson. And, um, Mikey Hickson's uh, husband? Mikey Hickson's husband, yes, who's not in good health, so please pray for him. Um, but uh, Doctor Dr. Dr. I call I jokingly call them Mister Doctor Robert Hickson and Mrs. Doctor Robert Hickson <laughs> because each of them has a doctor. They have both have doctors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, but but Mister Doctor Hickson uh, uh, wrote this piece on Peeper and, and contemplation. Um, Peeper had a, a lot to say about contemplation. His the book that everyone should read is Leisure: The Basis of Culture. Uh, which m- many people are going to think it's like an invitation to being a couch potato, which it's not, because this concept of leisure is very Catholic. Uh, but uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture is a wonderful book. I was assigned to read that in college at LSU, Mike, unbelievably. I took a course called Literature and Religion, <laughs> and they gave me that. So that was my first introduction to Peeper. But, um, uh, but, but uh, anyway, I came across uh, Robert Hickson's piece, I read it, and it reminded me once again of Pieper's profound insights about contemplation. And um, Pieper leans heavily on St. Thomas, although he was a he was a trained Greek scholar. He was a classical scholar before he went into sort of the special specialization in philosophy. So, um, so he, when he comments about St. Thomas, he can, he can explore the ancient Greek tradition that sort of precedes St. Thomas and give insights into it as well. So um, his, his insights into contemplatio, contemplation, are wonderful. Uh, man's ultimate end is contemplation, right? That, that our happiness will be, as St. Thomas says in the Summa Contra Gentiles, our happiness will consist in contemplation. That's what the happiness of heaven is. It's contemplating the truth with a capital T, himself, face-to-face. Now, brother, I have to ask you, uh, thank you very much for that. <clears throat> Are you familiar with Bishop uh, Velichovsky, the martyr? Uh, no, no. Uh, I'm going to invite you. Of- He's a Canadian. Uh, where is of Canadian? He was reposed in Canada. So I'm blousing around is, last... Was he Ukrainian? Yes. Or, or yes. Romanian? No, he was Ukrainian. Uh, horribly martyred and tortured by the Soviets. Uh, and was oh, Vasily? Vasily? Was Vasily his first name? Yes. Yes, um, it was. Okay, yeah, Basil. That's 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 the Ukrainian form of Basil. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a, a third-class relic of him someplace. Okay. okay, wonderful. I stumbled on it last night. He wrote a book, and since my uh, Midas Chur and I have a devotion to Our Lady Perpetual Help... He wrote a book called The History of the the Image of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Because I was asking, well, where, where, what century? Where do we get this from? You and I think. I think we don't, you and I talked about it. He wrote a book on it, so I ordered it last night. And I was reading his, his martyrology. I'm going like, so much we don't know. You will be amazed by this story. Maybe a future episode of Reconquest, hmm? Yeah, maybe. That's right. When, when you when you told me you, early on, you said something like, aren't you afraid you're going to run out of subject matter for, for Reconquest? And I'm like, uh, no. I don't think so. <laughs> now, the reason isn't because I'm so smart. The reason is because the, 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 the topics that you explore when you explore the Catholic faith are literally inexhaustible. Well, so um, come, we come, can't exhaust it. And, and another topic that you may want to uh, 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 consider, Monsignor Rossetti. Is has a new book out on exorcism. Yeah, I'm not going to touch him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the, 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 I, the, the, we should not forget 
the institution that this man headed up for years was incredibly corrupt and wicked. So, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to go anywhere near him. John, I, I didn't know that. Just uh, <clears throat> I, I, I get the notices from uh, Sophia Press. And yeah, the, 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 uh, the, the, it, it's a rehab place for priests that's notoriously corrupt. Wow. Well, maybe that's why he was an exorcist. <laughs> yeah, I, I never understood that. So I just don't, I, I, I'm not I'm not to, to trash the man, but I'm, I'm I mean, you know, I, I'm not into this cult of exorcists that every every exorcist that speaks, you know, about you know, every exorcist that opens his mouth somehow is an infallible and unimpeachable source on everything he talks about. I think there's an unhealthy thing going on there. Sure. Sure. Well, Hollywood has a lot to do with that, too. Yeah, and people people go for the gothic. They go for the they go for the the dark and the and the and the weird and and um, that that there's too much that's in the light that we can um, see that uh, that we don't need to keep going there. I'm, by the way, that's not intended. I'm not trying to rip Father Ripperger or any of those. Father Ripperger is a theologian, separately and distinctly and independently of being an exorcist. He has a certain competency sure. independently of that. So I, I'm not, and, and obviously I've interviewed Charles Franny, you know, uh, um, who took a lot of the things that these exorcists say, but I, I do see that some people are like just waiting just to see what the utterance, the latest utterance of some exorcist on something that somehow he's an unimpeachable source. And, you know, we don't have in the church a magisterium of exorcists. Understood. All right, brother, thank you very much uh, for uh, Visdom Wednesday. God bless, and we'll see you next week. All right. God bless you too, Mike, and God bless all our listeners. All right. Thank you. It's Brother Andre Marie from the St. Benedict Center 